Hello and welcome to the Paratex podcast. I'm Dr Dennis Duncan from the Centre for the Study of the Book at the Bodleian Library in Oxford and in this series I'll be talking to people who are working on paratexts, that is the parts of a book that are not the main text, things like indexes, errata lists, footnotes. And today we've got something slightly different. We have Dr. Amanda Golden, who's an assistant professor at the New York Institute of Technology. And Amanda works on marginalia, not just marginalia, but modernist marginalia. Amanda's book, Annotating Modernism, Marginalia and Pedagogy from Virginia Woolf to the Confessional Poets, is due out with Routledge in 2017. So fantastic to have you here, Amanda. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Amanda, can you tell us about some of the uh, the modernist writers whose annotations you've been working with? For example, I remember you telling me earlier on about Wolf. Oh yeah, um, Wolf. I've been working on recently. It grew out a bit of this project, my book, Annotating Modernism. Mm. Um, the beginning of Annotating Modernism has a scope that begins with Eliot's footnotes to talk about the idea of the annotation in modernism, how they originally added to fill pages, but yes, then yeah. also how they sort of took hold at mid-century in interpretations of the poem. And right, also they're also something he, he disowns. Yeah, I mean, yeah. <laughs> he wishes he could do away with them, but they've stuck. <laughs> um, and different poets do different things with them. Like Plath, when she teaches, she writes the contents of the notes into her copy and teaches with them, and she read critics who were more or less reading with them, um, whereas Berryman thinks they're stuffy and misleading. <laughs> <laughs> can we just be hit clear yeah. that we're talking about uh, annotations in a slightly different We're not talking oh, about Prince annotations like, like the Wasteland, but when you talk about Sometimes Berryman, you're... I you... talk a bit about the history of the genre and how... Um, coming out of people like Anthony Grafton's work on the footnote, um, that there's a longer history of the gloss of the footnote that grow out of each other, that have sort of intersections at times because they take on different forms of commentary and definition, and different critics define, you know, the the marginalia versus the gloss, the commentary versus uh, the definition and how that takes on a new role. It, the scope of the book moves from basically 1922 to 1962. Is there um, something there about the, yeah. the difference in, in your anticipated reader, that the, the, the footnote is for, for the other, for, for, for the unknown reader, whereas the, uh, the marginalia is for yourself? Is, it, is almost for, uh, not intended for, for anyone's eyes but, but oneself? Um, yes, but there's also the fact that people annotate in school and so I spend some time thinking about the structure of how we learn to annotate mm, okay. um, a bit from Heather Jackson's book um, but also the fact that people kind of annotate as if they're being graded on it because often <laughs> they are taught to and so someone like Plath really is very thorough in a particular way that she's repeating certain ideas from critics, she's repeating certain ideas from her teachers, but then at times she's also just underlining or noting things she likes. And sometimes she can be really snarky too. <laughs> I mean, she can be funny and snarky and sometimes she'll just say things like lovely in her copy of Joyce's Porch to the Artist. So some annotations will be things that you expect from yeah. a writer and other things I find more interesting and surprising at times are right out of the language of the time either culturally or critically. Sometimes it's out of a critic that, that say, Plath was reading when she was preparing to teach or studying. Other times it's connections her teachers made. 
Um, I was able, when I was at Smith, to read her teacher's own lecture notes. And so one point, for instance, she disagreed with in the beginning of uh, Plas' copy of Joyce of Portrait of the Artist, there's a little foreword, and um, Elizabeth Drew, Plas' teacher, disagreed with it. So Plas wrote no <laughs> next to what her teacher had disagreed with. So I mean, Plas was very keen on critics, more so than I was as an undergrad, um, because also because there were less fewer of them and more they were relying on as these texts became part of what was taught and how they were taught. So, so in a way, in, in Platt's marginalia then, sometimes you see not so much Platt's voice, but the voice of the, uh, the critics that she's, she's filtering yeah, these texts through. especially in her teaching notes. There are long passages just from critics, and then she'll sort of pare them down and down. Mm. And, but it's all filtered through her. It's all part of how she's, in, in, like, as she would say, synthesizing these writers that are also the same writers she admired. So I don't think she brackets to some extent the critical thought from her thought. I think they occur simultaneously, but but she's also immersed in a way of reading modernism that came out of the criticism. And it comes and it's part of how she admired modernism too and made sense out of it. Um, and when she teaches, she basically draws together several critics that we're talking about um, in one instance with Joyce and Eliot, um, several critics overlapped when they talked about things like paralysis and the living dead and death and life, and she played these critics off of each other in a way. In the margins? No, in her teaching notes, and in the margins because, yes, in her copy of Proofrock, for instance, she says, distant music, the dead. Um, and in her copy of The Dead, she says, good night, ladies, when they're all saying good night. But the distant music, The Dead, is from Hugh Kenner, which is one of the critics she was teaching with. Mm. So when you first come at the annotation, sometimes you'll think it was her impulse, and you'll say that was so astute. And then you'll work through all the critics she read and her, her other notes elsewhere, because they're in different libraries. And you'll see that some of these things she was noting after she'd read or as she read almost too remember it and to know to do it while she was teaching because um, there's layers of writing things out by hand and writing them in the texts and I don't know which her students remember her holding a book one student that I interviewed but um, I don't know in the moment which she would have turned to first her notes or her book. Right and, yeah. I find this a really fascinating yeah. uh, kind of subcategory of marginalia yeah. the marginalia that we use for, for teaching because something that, that, that I can relate to and I suppose you can relate yeah. to as well um, that there are other writers as well who, who, who have also been teachers who you've looked at there. They all were teachers all the writers I look at <laughs> that's sort of the essence of the project and, and we put pedagogy in the title because these poets are, are all at once writers, teachers, critics and students but then I sort of separated them out too, that Plath is more the student, Berryman's a bit more of the scholar and textual scholar, although he was also teaching, he was designing this humanities program that was a bit like comp lit, except it was sort of just all things he wanted to put together. So you get things like Ulysses and Anne Frank, because it was, <laughs> which makes sense if you think about it in the, right after World War II, because yes. Anne Frank was new and, and they both deal with Jewish identity and he was interested in both. But he actually also reversed the chapters of Ulysses as he taught them, perhaps to make it more legible and emphasize Bloom more if you're only mm. going to do parts of it. But he also wanted he also would teach the Penelope chapter and he asked he asked students in one sample exam question to compare Molly Bloom and Anne Frank. So I mean there's there's in um really uh unorthodox things he did, but creative things. But then others, like Anne Sexton, when she taught a course, 
she was not primarily a teacher. She didn't even go to college. Um, but her teaching notes are actually really interesting. People um, tried to dissuade me from working on them at first. Um, one, uh, one other book, uh, there is a book about her teaching, and, and the author says she was dissuaded too. But when I first inquired about working on her teaching notes, people were like, oh, she just dialed it in. That's what one person said. Mm. But that's not true at all because what I found was when I worked with her students' marginalia in their copies is that they match up the lectures she gave. And so she, what I find in, in throughout her work is when she gave so many interviews that she would study, in a way, all of these things that she would fashion this persona for herself. And she was a student, almost saying she wasn't a student. That was a studied comment. Like, so yes, she was sort yes, of effacing yes. the traces of her studiousness. Just so I can get yeah. my head around exactly yeah. the, the, the format of it. The, yeah. You were looking at the marginalia and students' copies of what books? Of, of, of Anne Sexton's books. So, oh, she's teaching So her. Anne Sexton taught a course about herself at Colgate <laughs> University where I went to college. And she and taught you, there. Yeah. You have access to her notebooks in which the, the yeah. teacher notes are and also to the students' notes. Students co- How fascinating. Because I went to Colgate so I wrote to, I wrote to students' names. I looked up the students' names that were in one page of the teaching mm. notes because I could access them in the directory. And um, turned out they were very interesting, had very wide-ranging and interesting careers. One was a producer of ER, uh, one was a school <laughs> principal, one became a nurse and had interesting thoughts about Sexton at the time. But I find this a really fascinating yeah. way of taking lecture notes. And so yeah. the, the way that we, we do, you have a kind of full-scap pad and you take your lecture notes or a, a notepad, um, that you'd have the text... Um, in, in this case the text by the author who's also the lecturer and you'd annotate the, the, the way of taking your student lecture notes is to, to, to mark up in the margins the text you're being I wonder taught. if that's more common in America because especially um, like I went this was unusual but I went to a private school and so we which is reversed from England but in America yes. the public is, yes, is yes. but but we bought our books, and so we were actually graded on writing in the margins, and we had to write in the margins to prepare for class, and then often we would write in the margins during class. Right, okay. Because yeah, so, you, you, yeah. you mentioned earlier that, that people are taught uh, Yeah, yeah. To so I wonder if it's an American thing. I mean, you could teach annotating without owning your books because you would, you would be annotating something like uh, on a page, like a Xerox. <clears throat> um, but... But it was more part of it. It was supposed to replicate, I think, at college when you would buy your books and essentially write in them. So I think Plath, actually, it was rare, but she bought all her books in high school. And her teacher, she was in this sort of honors section, and he had told them all to build, begin building libraries. But that was probably part of why, um, why we come to do it, especially in college uh, people write in their books. But is it still something that's taught in the American I think, system? Well, I don't know if it's taught, but when you're going over a passage with a professor in a smaller class especially, and the professor turns to the passage, you turn to the passage, and you start writing what they say, or at least that's what I did in college. I think other people yes. did too, and then that's the sort of thing where that's how it gets transmitted, and then people who go on to teach, they go back to their copies yeah. that have the yeah. margin notes from when they read it and when they were taught it. And Berryman, when he taught, actually, he showed students his marginalia. Well, I uh, wanted yeah. to ask you about Berryman. Yeah. I think I've read you yeah, yeah. say elsewhere that Berryman w- would, again, be annotating his text when he was preparing his lectures. So yeah. th- this isn't just his student notes, but this is the way that he would... Um, 
Yeah, when he taught, he actually had annotations in his book from when he read. Um, I don't know that he re-annotated it. I know Plath did because sometimes she had fresh copies just for teaching. Uh, but he took, his teaching notes are on these little cards. They're very small and they're just mm. kind of an outline. Mm. But what was cool was that when I was at Columbia and I was using John Huffenden's papers, I found a... Um, a like that? Yeah, yeah, like yeah. that. Like a correspondence from, in, in John Havenden's papers for his biography, there was a lot of stuff people had sent him and he had, he had inquired with people. And there was um, about maybe eight to a dozen pages of lectures that Berryman gave at Cincinnati on modern poetry. It was a series. And this classics professor there named Van Meter Ames had typed them up, had taken notes and typed them up or, um, and sent this copious full sentence account, like a stenographer's recording of the lectures. And so they, I mean, if we only had Berryman's record of those notes, it would have just been like a list. Yes, yes. So I studied those, and that was really fascinating. There were even things like jokes in it. That's where the stuffy and misleading about, um, I, I mean, of course, like, I don't know Van Meter Ames's voice as well, because he's sort of <laughs> been lost, you know, with to to see what was filtered through him, but he uh, he was a classicist, so he wouldn't necessarily know the subject. And they're very fulsome and very interesting. He says things like people are only um, beginning to understand Whitman. Mm. Um, that there, and some of the pound that he talks about it is rare too. It's not they don't feel um, canned in any way. And this was very early in his career that he gave these lectures. They actually told him first not to. Or first, he didn't include pound, and this was very early. It was 1952, um, and then they're like, no, our readers are really interested in pound, or our, our right. student. So, so he added in, there were three pound lectures, several Elliot lectures, um, several on the wasteland, walking through all of it. So that was an invaluable resource, finding all those notes and matching them up elsewhere to his materials, because we wouldn't have it otherwise. It's quite fascinating the way that some of the... Um, texts of posthumous texts we have, things like the uh, Saussure's um, Corps General or, or um, oh, yeah, Wittgenstein's Philosophical Investigations or, or, uh, or Canot's version of, of, of the Cochet Lectures in Paris are, are student notes that, that to me, did, I, I suppose in the 21st century, seem so um, complete, so comprehensive and so rigorous. They imagine publishing... Um, the work of somebody based on a student's notes, but do, I wonder if you're finding in the 20th century this is entirely possible. Well, I think people take less notes now. Mm. Um, Plath's notes are really interesting. She has several notebooks at um, Indiana that are very full, um, and her teaching notes are enormous, and they would have probably all been recycled because Plath was very keen on recycling paper. Unless she was like, unless she thought maybe I'll go teach again. Yeah, she would. She was the first. I mean, she would. She would recycle everything. I mean, paper was always scarce. <clears throat> Jane Austen wrote all the way to the ends and everything. But um, she would recycle typescripts of her own. She and Hughes famously wrote on each other's drafts. Um, Susan Van Dyne was the first to talk about that back talking between their papers. And then she also she stole all this paper to write the Bell Jar. Mm. And then, um, or first she was writing another novel she was imagining, and then it became The Bell Jar, and then she turned that over and wrote the aerial poems. So there's a dialogue between them. I mean, in some ways it could be random, but in other ways 
you can see different ideas or people have looked a lot at what's on the backs of the pages. Yes, but sure. but some of these teaching notes were on that pink paper too. So it would probably and she often just wrote on one side. So it would I think they were almost all on one side. So they would have probably been recycled after, but she left everything home. But you're seeing teaching notes that are also on the same leaf as, as bits of the bell jar and bits of the air. No, 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 no. It's just the same type of paper. She, um, she used all different kinds of paper for her teaching notes, but I think it's on March 8, 1958, that she went up to the history supply closet, which was then, I think, on the fifth floor of the building, because history and English, when I looked them up, that's where their offices yeah. were. And she stole all this paper. It's, it's kind of a famous example of a paper thief theft. Uh, but it, she liked the texture. It was also kind of a status symbol for her because she had gone to Smith, and this was the formal mm. memorandum paper. It was sort of like um, her credentials, both as a student, as a teacher, is sort of um, verif- verified. or it's, it's almost like playing a role, too, and, and being accepted in that role. So she, but she stole all this paper, and then she wrote home when she was in England, and she was on such a hot streak, she wrote to one of her professors and asked to send more paper, and she offered to pay for it um, this time. <laughs> but she, that wasn't the only time she did that. When she worked for Mademoiselle, she used their paper. She recorded the journal passage that, it's, a, it's in the appendix to the journals, but her account of the Rosenberg execution is on the stationery from uh, Street and Smith publications right. from when she was at the at Mademoiselle during the Bell Jar summer. Um, and I think her mother used paper from Boston University where she taught. So, I mean, it was sort of a, <laughs> it's in it was a frugal thing. Yeah. I mean, it was, but it was also the texture and the color. She really loved that it was pink and it gives her work a bit of an identity, yeah. a bit of a signature. I mean, Rethke used green ink and he wrote the greenhouse <laughs> poems and Virginia Woolf like indigo ink. I mean, every writer has their, um, their things. Can we jump back a bit yeah. and, and talk about Wolf? You've been looking at um, Wolf's yeah, yeah. Uh, annotations to, yeah. uh, to a particular type of of her life, a particular sort of section of her library. Yeah, I went out last summer to Washington State, where her library is. Um, it's the Library of Leonard in Virginia and Toby Stephen, and also um, a bit of Leslie Stephen and the entirety of the Dictionary of National Biography, wow. which takes up like a wall. <laughs> it's beautiful. Um, and it's all in, at Washington State University. And so I went out there to work with it because I got interested in, like, once I was there, so I got interested in thinking about what we could do with them when people knew in some ways that Wolf doesn't annotate like other readers because she took, took such copious. Um, reading notes and she has Mm. reading notes and reading notebooks and they've been written about at length um and so I was thinking about what what to make of the actual physical copies and when she translates I learned once from the microfilm of what is at the Berg collection and then went to see the original um she created this one notebook that was a Greek notebook that basically had pasted in editions of Agamemnon and she was thinking of creating her own edition. So, but I noticed it was all... Um, creating her, we're, yeah. we're not talking about the Hogarth Press years, though. Are, yeah, that oh, was, okay. this is so later. Like, I see, yes. Well, I jump back and forth a bit, but that was a later piece where she was translating it herself, and she was patching it together. Mm. She had sort of pasted it in a notebook, and in the margins of the notebook she was writing the translations of things, and she was thinking of creating her own edition. It's mm. not exactly clear, but she mentioned some things in her diaries about it. 
And um, so I got really curious about Can that. I, sorry, just, okay. yeah, just yeah. ask a, yeah. a very boring yeah, yeah. technical question, but how, how is it being pasted in? Is it interleaved between every it's page like we have a blank? It's like created, it's a notebook like her other notebooks, which I guess they would create it at the Hogarth Press in terms of making a book. But so it's like pasted on papers are cut from a book. Mm. Copies of, I think it's Verol's Greek, I'm not sure. Veral might also be a translator, right? I might have them mixed up. I published a piece on this a few years ago in um, the Selected Papers from the Wolf Conference at Glasgow. But yeah, it's all pasted in, and I couldn't exactly see it on the microfilm, so but I wasn't seeing it. Does that mean you've original. got one, one blank sheet for every sheet of, of Greek text? Yeah. I think it's only a one. I think it's only the right-hand sides that yeah. she's... okay. It might be only on one side, but I'm not sure. It might be facing. But the margins, like the page is only... The margins are the margins of the original pa pages pasted yeah. on. Um, and then, in fact, on the microfilm, you can actually see this cut strip from the original this, like that got left in there. So it's sort of an unfinished project. Um, in which there's still fragments in the actual book that she created. But I got interested in this for a variety of reasons, especially the margins, because she's not an annotator. By, like, some people are not as inclined, and she wrote this yes. early sketch that I published at one point in um, Wolf Studies Annual, where she was, it's very famous, Hermione Lee quotes it, where she's satirizing all the different types of annotators, the person who draws corrections, the, the emotional reader, um, the sort of more aggressive reader. And um, she and I think part of the reason she didn't annotate as much is that she was always reading other people's books. Um, not always. She acquires quite a lot, a few books on her own, a lot of books on her own. But but often her books were part of her father's library or the library, which is that's just criminal to underline the library's books. <laughs> like she was very I, I clear see, about yes, that. And, yes, yeah, yeah. And then um, it is. It, it, it is I criminal. Think, I think and, it's in there. It's in there. It's the London yeah, Library. Yeah, yeah. There's a ruling can, in the middle of the nineteenth yeah, century yeah, that you can no longer annotate yeah, our books. Yeah, yeah. So um, and then also um, their books that she and Leonard owned would be shared property. So I mean, it wasn't as if. Um, at a lot of the time, she so wasn't... So even then, even, even when it's not the, the library books, there's a taboo she, about annotating your own versus annotating other I think books. she carried that... I think she just didn't get into the practice. I think she just, as Hermione Lee says, her notebooks were her system of annotation. But, mm. but I, I really got interested in the idea that when readers at the time translated... Her, um, Emily Delgarno has this book on translation where she says there was this mode of glossing where they would underline a word and substitute another and sometimes it's more than a word sometimes there's phrases or or passages wolf writes in <clears throat> but it uses a book like a workbook yes and then it can work over time like there's multiple colors and pencil and ink in wolf's copy of sophocles so i mean it wouldn't just be a notebook upon one time it would be sort of a life's work of com compilation right, um, and right. in Wolf's novel The Years she actually has a character translating that way and annotating his text and I got really mm. excited about how it's described because it's described just like annotation is um, and so I got interested in the way she and Joyce and other people who didn't annotate themselves were depicting it in their fiction and this sort of ties back to the introduction of my book too because there's a part about Joyce's um, chapter 2, book 2 of Finnegan's Wake, which has marginalia in it. Um, and one side is glossing and the other side is more um, 
commentary. Mm. And there's an article mm. about that um, in a very old critical inquiry from 1977, I think, by Lawrence Lipking that discusses the different genres he plays with because they're very clear. Like one is more formal than the other, and then at halftime, the boy's annotating it switch sides, <laughs> and the girl does the footnotes. Um, and so it's interesting because there's three different kinds of commentary going on there. And it's a textbook that they're annotating, and it's the lessons chapter. So that also brings in the school element of annotating. Um, that Joyce himself, though, was not a big annotator. And I went and worked with his books at Texas that were from, um, I don't, I think that's his Trieste library that's at Texas now. Um, and he does make lines in the margin, but he's not a big annotator either. So both he and Wolf um, were crafting this practice. And what's really interesting is once you get into the post-war, that is how people start understanding their books, is by writing in their books. Yes. More so even with Joyce, because his, his need more glossing in certain ways. Yes, Whereas yes. Um, with Wolf, I mean, there's all kinds of ways you can underline Wolf. Um, Plath actually isn't an, as extensive an, under, an annotator of Wolf. She's more of an underliner of Wolf. But like when I first started this project over a decade ago in 2002, 14 years ago, I started working with Karen Kukiel at Smith, and she told me to get the editions that Plath underlined. So, so I have about, you know, two dozen books that I've made that are copies of the books Plath owned. Ulysses took a whole summer. Oh, wow. So I, but I would try and make the lines like Plath made them because often you can glean some sense of, of whether it's a bold line or a quick this line. Is fantastic. So you've got you've got handmade facsimiles yeah, of, of handmade facsimiles of, of of many of them, and I and I would collect them to see so that I could look at it as a whole. Um, when I was not at Smith, and of course Amazing. it's inexact, but it's really a fascinating process, and you, you never know the. I mean, you're always dealing with a material record, a material artifact that is different from the experience of reading, um, and then you can work with that. I mean, you can never know what what someone was doing or thinking, but you can see it as a whole. This in some ways by looking at the annotated book. Yes. So that's how I started thinking about it. Then when it became easier and easier to photograph. I just started photographing everything because then you can really easily look through sure, the images. Yeah. Um, and I would love someday to make images of annotated books where, just like they do sometimes, where you can turn the pages uh, on the screen. Yes. Yeah. And that way you could see things like when the ink bleeds through the paper. Um, that would be really fascinating mm. um, for some for some books, I mean, if we could, the more you could do, the more it could alter people's sense of reception and, and thinking about writers and influence and, and such. Yes, which I suppose is, is the broader aim of this project, is it's about reception. I mean, it's not, it's not about reception per se. It, it started out more about thinking about reading and how things are read in, in a case study kind of manner and how did Wolf read... Uh, or how did Plath read modernism? Because often people come in with a set of assumptions about the new criticism, yeah. say, and how it, it was deployed. But you see very different things when you look at an individual text and you retrace what someone read and the courses they had and their professor's lecture notes. And, and often, too, or in one case, I compared Plath's copy of Ulysses with another student 
who attended the same lectures. Yes. And plasts are, are more copious. Right. Um, right. But you can see common themes and common threads, and, and I was trying to distinguish what was shared and what was individual. Yes. yes. Um, so, I, yeah. I, so I suppose there's two strands here. There's this one, which is what, what type of reader was Virginia Woolf? Yeah. Uh, and then there's how did people read Virginia Woolf? And, and you, you, sometimes you've got kind of chains of literary celebrities. So how did uh, uh, Plath read Woolf? Yeah, Wolf? yeah. I don't... I don't get too much into Plath and Wolf in this book, but I have written an article elsewhere about it because it, it was a topic that consumed me for a long time. Mm. But I focused on Plath and Joyce and Eliot because um, Plath's teaching of Joyce and Eliot kind of interlocked. And it's also they've received less attention. Eliot is often put in because Plath, of course, she read Eliot. Um, Joyce has been given a lot less attention because it's so big. I mean, the copy of yes, Ulysses is right. huge and detailed, but also because there is an, a, an impulse for good reason to go right to her reading of women writers. Um, so I was trying to offset that balance a little bit in taking up her reading of some male modernist writers. Yes. Yeah. There's one I like in, in the Harry Ransom Centre, which is Raymond Cano, my, my idol Raymond Cano, and, and his... Uh, notebooks when he read Ulysses. He, he oh. read Ulysses over seven months. Mostly, I have to say, it's um, it's words that he had to look up were, uh, as a non-Anglophone, not oh. a very good English speaker, but not native English speaker. So his reading notes are, are largely "snot green equals." <laughs> <laughs> it's fascinating to look at the uh, the kind of reading notebooks of of, of the readers that we're interested yeah. in. It sounds like an incredibly fascinating project. I really can't wait to see the book. So thank you very very much, thank Amanda. Thank you for having me.